Hello, Cyclocross friends, and thanks for tuning in to episode 231 of Cyclocross Radio. On today's show, Zach, Elizabeth, myself, and special guest Amanda Nauman are breaking down the Olympic mountain bike races that took place a week or so ago. Michael is out on assignment working on his Criterium video project that will be available on the Wide Angle Podium YouTube page down the road. If you want even more coverage on these races, check out the CX Hairs Bulletin and consider becoming a subscriber. And as always, go to WideAnglePodium.com and check out the terabytes, terabytes of cycling content housed within. Although we don't discuss it in the episode, I, I did want to take a moment to remember Julian Verschuren, who passed away on July 2nd. Uh, please forgive my mispronunciation of her name, if, if there is any. But Julian started her career racing with Telenet Fidea in 2015, and she joined Powell Saws in Bingle in 2017. Her biggest on-bike success came at Copenburg Cross in 2015 and then again in 2016. In the 2016 race, she battled Felita de Jong for the entire race, breaking the, at that time, current world champ on the final climb to emphatically take the win. If, if you haven't seen that, go watch the YouTube clips if you can find it. It's, it her joy is everything. In April of 2018, Julian underwent surgery to remove a malignant brain tumor, and despite her health struggles, she continued to race throughout the 2019 and 2020 seasons for Powell Saws and Bingle, who stood by her throughout her racing career. Like many cyclocross athletes, her family was her support system on the track and off. Many times when covering sports, it's easy to blur the line between reality and show. Uh, from a spectator standpoint, sports is entertainment. And we have a tendency to, to dehumanize athletes, uh, especially those at the top of the sport who may stray from the performance we expect. If nothing else, Julian's too short life and her desire to continue competing despite never recapturing the form that allowed her to race among the best should remind us of the, of the humanity and fragility of those who compete at the highest levels. We sometimes mistake humans with superhuman abilities for superheroes, where in reality they are no different than, than you and me. We, we all hurt the same, both mentally and physically, and treating each other with love and respect should be first and foremost in our, in our life goals. We will remember Julian at Copenburg this season and beyond, and we'll celebrate the life she lived. Okay. Let's talk Olympic mountain bikes, and let's do that right now. We are back in the media pit. We're talking mountain biking, so we got Elizabeth here, and also Zach, and a special guest sitting sitting in for Bodie. It's Amanda Nauman. Hey, Amanda, how's it going? Hi, good. I have no puns, so please don't ask me. <laughs> okay, good. We got that out of the way. Zach, anything? Any puns? Oh, I was supposed to do that. I thought Amanda was going to do that. No. Uh, she just, she, 
<laughs> she punted. Oh. All right. Well, we'll, well, I do have to say, uh, we were joking right before we came on after uh, the most recent episode of Grodio where I had to stand in for Bill. And you may have noticed Bill's cadence changed uh, a little bit on that intro. So we, we were in his head. We'll see how the rest of this show goes, but we have already we're already under Bill's skin, and we're not even in the first minute of this podcast. So I'm excited. Uh, I have the podcast twisties, whatever whatever that would be. Uh, it's okay, Bill. I think you can do it. Let's talk about mountain biking. I know it happened a while ago now, but the Olympics are still going on, so we can still still talk about the the Olympic mountain biking race and and this is you know the most important race in mountain biking as far as mountain bike athletes of the cross-country persuasion go so it's definitely worth uh spending some time on and i i'd like to start just with talking about the track itself but also the conditions you know and the varying conditions between between the races i think we're going to talk about the men's race first but elizabeth just in general you know what what are your thoughts just on the conditions of the track and even even the track itself well i think this is i've got to say of of any olympics i've watched i think this is the best olympic mountain bike course um that there ever was i know uh seeing posts and messages from a few athletes who didn't make uh, the Olympic selection sort of lamenting not getting a chance to race this course um, because it's such a great course. I think, you know, it's a great example of a course that has built features uh, that replicate or still have a lot of that character of a of a traditional old school backcountry mountain bike course, um, but then built with these sort of really elegant touches you know i kind of couldn't get over places where there were just a little bit of wood plank built in between crevices in a rock like just very artfully done Um, but really not in a way that took away from it being a super technical uh mountain bike course uh that had you know good climbing good descending didn't have a lot of the um sort of the bike park features that you associate with something like a Leogang course or something where you have just sort of a boring climb up a mountain um, and a straight down descent, a lot of variety and a really demanding course. And I think it was demanding under both conditions, both the dusty, dry, slippery steepness that the men encountered. And then we'll get into it a little later, but uh, there was a uh, typhoon that kind of hit part of the course uh, right before the women's race. And so while it wasn't as potentially epically wet as uh, some prognosticating predictions about the weather might have uh, suggested, it was still wet, tacky, slippery, merited some course changes um, because of the slippery conditions that were wet, slippery. So I think it was an interesting study of contrasts. Uh, in the two races based on what the course did and didn't allow um, and really, you know, forced riders off their bikes in both cases uh, in ways that I think it would have been rideable in sort of like tacky hero dirt conditions, uh, difficult but rideable on some of the the sort of steep turns and things like that. Um, but you had instances where it really pushed uh, the technical limits of, of riders. Yeah, and Zach, so we've been through this this season so far, and I think that you've gotten a good look. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, some courses are 
just straight up climbs. It may not be the both most exciting. Some are like super technical and they may favor one set of rider as opposed to another set of riders. Did you feel like this was a pretty good a pretty good balance of skills between between the climbing bits and then the technical bits? Well, first, I just I, my first impression was uh, what's a good word to use here? I mean, the course the course looked incomplete. <laughs> uh, I know uh, looking back and watching like some video from Rio, you know, it was very manicured or whatever. But I mean, there were sections where there were no lines; they were just like going down these weird dirt drops that look like I don't know, uh, like. I've seen at like track when they're just for their cyclocross race when they're just like, oh, we just put in this new line yesterday. Uh, it's part of the course, uh, which I thought was kind of, I don't know, I guess made it more interesting. <laughs> Definitely a little bit different. I love too how it was an Olympic race and they were like, hey, we're going to set this line with a bunch of pin flags, but you can't go outside the pin flags. But, you know, here's four feet where you can ride. Like, it seemed like they could have, like, gotten some course tape or something. But it was like you had to be very mindful. And you, you, couldn't, go, you couldn't go outside of them. They were talking about that. Uh, but I don't know. I think it was, it was definitely different. I mean, it took away – I mean, it will get to the women's race. But I think it took away the advantage of a certain favorite in the race by not having massive climbs. Like, they were super steep. I mean, it reminded me more of – almost like Midwest mountain biking, the kind of stuff you might see where it's these really steep, you know, 15% pitches that are short, uh, that definitely I think changed and affected, especially the women's race, instead of just having a massive like eight minute climb (laughs) up to the top of a mountain. So I don't know. I mean, I guess I would like to see more courses like that, uh, on the world cup circuit. Obviously that's not going to happen because it's mountain biking and most of it takes place in Europe on mountains, but I don't know. I feel like it'd be more interesting to throw some variety, kind of like cyclocross has, to throw different kinds, you know? Uh, I mean, Elizabeth was just in in the UP. Why don't we go there? They have some nice climbing and descending, but much shorter. UP, Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Let's let's throw a wrench in it. Let's do a World Cup race somewhere different, Uh, you know? And maybe if Arkansas ends up getting one, maybe that'll be the case, that it'll be a little bit different. So for me, I I found that aspect of the track interesting uh, in addition to my first impression of like wow this some of these features and the way this course is put together looks kind of slapdash yeah it's that's interesting that was your that was your your takeaway because i I know just from the the test event they had a lot of time to sort of dial in what they wanted to do and then i i guess my argument for the the little pin uh what do you call them pin flags well one much like what we see in cyclocross where the the tape is strategically lowered and raised in certain places so that you get better tv angles and again we can talk about if that actually worked for this uh this broadcast or not but also uh, when i was looking at it i was thinking yeah especially uh, I, I was compare i was thinking about it since we we're doing this today i was comparing it to the i know this is horrible since it's all the rage now i was comparing it to today's f1 race where in in there they you know um i think it was uh it wasn't Hamilton, but somebody just completely cut the track in a place that wasn't, you know, it didn't really matter. And it was like, did they make, pick up an advantage or didn't they pick up an advantage by cutting that corner out and then getting back onto the track? And I really don't think there was anywhere here where if they had gone outside of the course, that it was really an advantage. That's I think they did a good job of like, it wasn't just like open space. It was like, you know, just this, this where we almost like we had in Rio. So it, it seemed like there was definitely specific lines that you had to take and just getting into the yeah zach 
Well, what about on what about in the second race though? Like where I mean, very much on the the climbs where the mud. I mean, the riding line was mud, and yeah, you know, there was strong temptation to pull a cyclocross move and find that sweet, sweet green grass of grip, uh, and you couldn't. It was just like I think probably kind of like tantalizing. It was taunting you, but you couldn't That's go true. outside the flags yeah, for sure. Uh, but to your point, I think you are correct. I think one of the other reasons, though, uh, that it might be marked that way is because of the Olympics, you can't have sponsor logos on things like that. So if you look at some of the other Olympic events, any place that there are billboards in the background, they're covered up. Uh, The road race finishes, for example, on the racetrack, all of the banners and sidewalls had to be covered up with uh, plain banners. So like just red tape. So I think if we think about what most course tape is, that's usually a sponsor logo opportunity. And so that may be actually part of the Olympic regulations um, that they're using those little flags in the ground rather than full on course tape. Well, fortunately, our friend Vanderpool uh, recovered and was not, uh, you know, severely injured. But, you know, had he been, then they could have used like crime scene tape or something, you know, like do not cross. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah, well, I was just going to follow that up with, yeah, you know, God forbid there be a sponsor logo out there and somebody make the, uh, you know, solely the Olympics by making money off of it, like <clears throat> NBC or anybody else. You know, it's like it's, that that this is a not-for-profit uh, uh, thing. Well, couldn't they also, Bill, you'll appreciate, Bill, you appreciate this. They could all, couldn't they also do the, uh, like, Jordan at the 92 Olympics and just duct tape over uh, the sponsor logo if it's not sponsor correct? <laughs> exactly. All right, let's get into this race. Let's start. Uh, what were we? So we we're starting with the men's race, and a couple couple notes here just to to set the set the stage. You know, we talked a lot about not to any spoilers. Hey, Tom Pidcock won this race. Uh, he started at the back of the field, but on the other side, field super small, thirty eight people uh, racing in each field. Normally, in a World Cup for the men's race, we're seeing over one hundred and twenty participants. Yet. Elizabeth, they set up, they had this start loop, but right after that, they got this like insane rock feature that pretty much decided the top 10 of the race, like right away. Yeah. So I think this actually plays into uh, the women's race a little bit worse and uh, more with more severe consequences than for the men. Uh, But it really was, I think in, in watching it, you know, we're used to some of these most of our World Cup tracks that have a prologue or have a, a start loop, it's a lot wider for a lot longer uh, and usually gives a little bit more room for a shakeout. And this one was, uh, I think, you know, if there are features to criticize about this course, that would be my number one was not enough room before you hit a super decisive pinch point uh, that forced a lot of people off their bikes. Uh, and not just for the one first rock, but also for the drop that followed it. In many cases, you have people who can't get back on their bike and up to speed enough to ride right away. Uh, and I think this was, you know, it's it was painful uh, to watch to a certain degree because you think, like, you've just gotten started. You have a small field. This shouldn't be such a problem. Uh, and then you really have... Um, have shaken things up for a lot of people really, really quickly. Um, so, yeah. Go ahead, Zach. Well, I'm just kind of wondering with a test event, like, how did this happen? Like, do, I feel like I'm, I, 
there's a there's a race like uh, a Wisconsin cyclocross race like that that had a pinch point like literally in the first minute and I after racing it and getting stuck I went on Facebook as one does and I complained and they have not put that feature back on the course because I was just like this is I mean you're deciding the race a minute into the race like <laughs> you know it's really unfair to anyone who's not starting on the front row I'm just kind of surprised that with the test event that it seems like that's the kind of thing you're supposed to be. I, I the word I'm going to use here for is testing for. Well, I guess, and I mean, Amanda, you're a you're a cyclocross racer. You know the importance of of starts and and getting out front. So I guess I guess to just um, counter argue that, uh, like the counter argument for everything in in this race, Tom Pitcock, you know, started on the last row and he was able to make it through there and still make his way up. So I guess if you have the skills, does that sort of like just, is that greater than everything else? Oh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm watching the men's race in the background here. And to preface, I watched the women's race mostly in full and just caught some of the highlights of the men's race for the most part. And yeah, I didn't realize how much of the that pinch in the beginning was such a deciding factor for the men's race. And personally, I'm never a fan of that. I think you should allow some room to be able to have maybe a little bit more power decide that in that starting loop. I feel like in a lot of the World Cup events, that start loop allows for more movement and not necessarily a pinch that cuts everybody else off. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. And I also didn't realize that Vanderpool kept pedaling from what the, the highlights that I saw, I think most of them just kind of forgot the fact that, you know, he crashed and that was the main highlight and whatever, but I'm watching him sadly pedal around right now. And it's so heartbreaking. (laughs) I didn't realize he kept going. Yeah, it's not like his old days in cyclocross where he'd have a bad race and just give up. Like he yeah. actually really gave it a full full faith effort. It looked like for quite a while. I mean, he yeah. really did stay in for quite a while, which I think goes to show how heartbroken he was about yeah. it too. Like Well, he made it all the way yeah. up to like 14th or 15th. I mean, I know he he passed our boy Chris Blevins at one point, so he he moved his way up. Yeah, and even you know, just getting getting, I, we'll get to Vanderpool, but getting back to the beginning, Elizabeth, you were talking about the conditions, the difference between the men's and the women's race, and this is, I guess, the first question is like, which conditions were better? I mean, I, I think where we saw it was right after that pinch point where they had sort of the serpentine climb up to the highest point in the course, and and for the men, it was almost harder, I think, to to climb that because it was so dusty and it's so. I mean, it sounds weird to say that the dry conditions made it even more slippery, and they just could not get any traction. And that was a that was a huge deal with a lot of dismounts and a lot of a lot of shuffling of places on that on that climb. Yeah, absolutely. I actually think that the course was more slick for the men than it was for the women. Um, there were, you know, the rocks maybe not so much, but uh, I I think that the looking at the way that the men had to had to get off and run. I think they had very little traction in a lot of spots. I think also, you know, there was a lot of uh, carving turns and I kept worrying that they would be burping air and getting flats. And I was surprised that there weren't actually more flats in the men's race because of just how deep they were railing some of those ruts uh, in some of those turns. So I think that the, you know, it was it was evident by how many of the men were running those switchbacks, um, just how slippery it was there. And I think, you know, just to, one more thing on the that pinch point, like it wasn't 
the be all end all uh, for everybody because, you know, uh, Valero Serrano was in like 29th or 30th place on the first lap and, you know, spoiler alert, gets the bronze. Uh, so it's it sucks because it feels like it's uh, a be all end all um, pinch point. We do see most of the favorites make it through that first pinch point. I think it's probably frustrating for that mid-pack who was maybe going to have a breakthrough day if you were sitting in that, like, I think I'm going to have, you know, was this, for example, a factor for a Chris Blevins who had been on a pretty nice upward trajectory, showing some pretty good results? Did getting pinched there set him back from a better result? Possibly. Um, but it's a it's a mental pinch point. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's why she's here. <laughs> Even early on the race, you know, we're talking about our eventual winner, Pitcock. My my notes I had him at three three minutes and forty seven seconds into the race, he was in ninth position. And this is where we're still going through that. You know, it's it's a lot of traffic, a lot of bunch, and a minute and a half later, he's in third. And, and and it's it's I think that looking at how he played that is that he's probably burned a couple matches early to get into that striking zone, and then he just sat in. I I thought it was just like super smart. He didn't get to there and then all of a sudden say, "Hey, I'm going now." It it sort of, you know, he he just sort of got to a place where he knew he was in a good spot and then just kind of kind of chilled out. And I, I and un, unlike somebody like Vanderbilt, who I don't think looked great in the beginning and also looked like he was pushing. I mean, you want to talk about who the cyclocross racer is like five minutes into the race, Pitcock's off his bike running past people. And Vanderpool looks like the mountain biker who is allergic to getting off his bike and just wants to muscle everything in, in the big ring up the climb. So I, I, I thought that contrast just really early on, on was interesting. Going back to the course a little bit too, I think I mean it didn't happen in the women's race because the race just exploded. But I felt like the men's race stayed together with a larger group at the front, minus the climb. So that was another aspect, I guess, that was interesting to me is that not having the I I like go on any any I just think of like a group ride, right? Like if your group ride is going on relatively flat, like usually it stays together. If it's a very hilly group ride, it explodes, and like you have very distinct groups based on climbing ability. And I think it's you know climbing ability is a great equalizer or not an equalizer. <laughs> is an equalizer? I don't know if that would. Well, you get what I'm saying. Uh, so to me, it seemed like the front of the men's race was more dynamic with more people early on versus like, it seems like a couple guys have been really establishing themselves or like, well, Avancini, Avancini did the thing. Like he was there. <laughs> he had a great start to the race. He had a great start to the race. Uh, you know, uh, credit to him. But I think we're seeing, we saw that earlier in the year in the World Cups. I think lately it, it seems like more of like Flukager is, uh, so he was like, it seems like Flukager was not, he had a slow-ish start, it seemed like, because I think we kind of had him circled as the favorite of the not Vanderpool or Pitcock wild cards, yeah? Oh, for yeah, sure. I, and I think, you know, I, I, I think sort of kind of going back to Bill, what you were saying, I think Pitcock was watching the, the front of the race well, and I think, you know, it was, I mean... It, to, to quote uh, Zach's favorite phrase, I, I wrote early on that I it looked like Nino was back. Uh, I mean, he goes chopping Pitcock into a, in a turn, into a climb. Um, and I think, you know, seeing 
him working the front and then seeing how he and Flickinger were setting up. And I think Pidcock didn't make a move until he sensed that there was a need to make sure he stayed on Matias and made sure he tracked that because that was what he viewed as the dangerous move. He was there. You know, I think it's interesting. They actually sort of strung it out, uh, the three of them, the, so the two Swiss and Pidcock, on the pavement. Uh, they put a gap into the rest of the field on the start of the second lap. And that's when you start sort of seeing like, okay, he's going to start setting this up. And then he gets into that, you know, I think that the chop from Nino and getting getting that, making that attack where then Pidcock gets set up for his decisive move, which also in, you know, cyclocross fandom is a great attack on and off camber. Uh, and then he's clearly kind of feeling his oats because right after that attack, he goes off the drop and whips like the back end a little bit like, oh, OK, all right, we're here, we're going. And he was he was ready to go on that. And I think but I don't think he had you know, he sensed he knew what he needed to mark. And especially with Vanderpool out of the race like that then turned to being Flickinger and. You touched on two things here. One, uh, the backness is not just, it's not just a phrase. Like backness is very much like a state of being. Uh, and we've established that I am the arbiter backness because Bill has tried and I just, I feel like he he missed the mark. Uh, so there were, there were rumblings, but you know, I think, spoiler alert, when we get to the women's race, I think we have like perhaps the pinnacle achievement in backness. Uh, so, uh, you know, Nino, Nino tried hard. I, I mean, give him a lot of credit, and he fought really hard, and he almost landed on the podium. Uh, so I just, uh, you know, I don't know. Just, I'm just want to yeah. let you know that it's not to be thrown around. Uh, no, uh, uh, you got to put qualifiers if they're not yeah. officially back. Two, I think we established uh, during Nova Masto. There's the the the. I'm not gonna call it the whippo meter, but we'll call it the whippo meter. It's like if you're whipping, you're feeling good, and then when you're going into the uh, when you're not doing so hot, you stop whipping. I saw Pidcock whip as well, and I was like, ha-ha, he's going to win this race. I mean, I think it was just – it was a flex. I don't know if his competitor saw it, but it was very much a, uh, a sign that you know one might say that he was born uh, to win this race. So here, here's my question. We're talking about this fluky attack that happened at the end of the first lap, and you would think, end of the first lap, that must be really early in this race. It's actually – gosh, it's it's like – 17 minutes into the race and the the biggest drama of the race happened at 15 minutes and and that's before the first lap even ends and that's uh vanderpool not realizing there's a ramp um you can i wrote all about it on the cxr's bulletin i don't know how much we need to rehash that uh ramp situation again but he um clearly if you see him ride it thought he was going to play it say and it's it's one of the things it's like you're talking about whips you're talking about style we've seen vanderpool throughout his cyclocross career as a guy that like you know is ahead of a race and puts in this just insane whip you're like dude just win the race we don't need that right now and he's finally like olympics this is it. This is the penalty. This is what I want to win. I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to be conservative this time. And it just bites him in the ass. And, and you know, literally. And he's uh, rolling down the hill and uh, eventually drops out of it. Even though if he looked good or didn't look good or whatever, I think that what may have 
animated that attack at the end of the first lap, another factor in that is Vanderpool's no longer there. And I think that you save some matches if you think that Vanderpool is in that group because Fluky's had to deal with his attacking 2009 from 2018 on, you know, and those guys have been battling it head to head. So he's got to have that. And once that's gone, I think that he was able to really say, okay, I can dictate this race. Now I'm the strongest guy out here. I can dictate this race. Yeah. But that's, I mean, I, I think you've got a good point there. I mean, the, the ferocity of a Vanderpool ad- attack is a known quantity and uh, one that the rest of the field has struggled to match. And so if you know that you don't have to worry about that, uh, you can you can ride a little differently because you aren't just sort of waiting for that to happen. And sometimes waiting for that to happen really deep in the race when most people don't have that kind of five-second power left anymore, and he's got it for 10. I admittedly wasn't able to watch the race uh, live because I didn't stay up and I had to go to work on Monday morning pretty early. Uh, (laughs) But it was interesting listening to the commentators talk about the Vanderpool crash and basically knowing what we know now, hearing them say literally everything but he didn't realize the ramp was there. You know, where they're like, he didn't take enough speed. It looks like he kind of pushed down when he shouldn't have. So it was kind of interesting to see them talk around it, knowing that the answer was he didn't actually no. Well, was it there. was even worse than that. They were, you know, intimating that he didn't he didn't, you know, he shouldn't have raced the Tour de France because he didn't have, you know, enough time to hone his mountain bike skills to be able to, you know, ride this kind of technical drop, which wasn't it was a big drop, but it wasn't a technical drop. I mean, this as as these things go for what these guys rides, this was nothing. This was just a, a, like a send you know there there was nothing technical about it the run out was huge it was it was so steep that you really unless you're yolanda it's almost impossible getting knocked off the ramp it's almost impossible to case this this jump i mean you just like flow right into it so he obviously something was not right so it was there the, the commentating was just idiotic for for that that portion yeah, because it's obvious when you go into it, it's he's pushing down because he's going to get speed off the ramp. Like, it is very obvious if you you watch it and you know what that move is for on the mountain bike, that that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to push into the ramp that doesn't exist. So, like, there is no reason that you would do this unless you thought the ramp was there. And my my question when I was watching back was, you also know that move, and I feel if you're the rider right behind, you should know that if the person in front of you isn't doing that, like at least a split second questioning it and watching back, there's enough of a gap from third to him that he probably didn't see the person right ahead of him do that as he was about to drop in. And so that was my going to be my question was like, if he had seen that, then I would have been questioning this. But it's very obvious that that gap was just enough to the rider ahead of him that he just didn't see it. And it sucks. And I think, yeah, watching the replays and seeing him just intentionally with so much conviction just push his bike down was heartbreaking. And, yeah, I, I really felt for him because you could see that he believed that it was there, unfortunately. And going back to what you guys were saying about that mental aspect, there are three riders ahead of him that obviously probably don't know that it happened. Maybe they heard something but don't know it's Vanderpool. But I think that as soon as it happened and Pidcock knew this is really taking Vanderpool out of contention in a way, maybe setting him back a little bit, 
I think that helped a lot in terms of the mental game of like, okay, I really got this now. <laughs> Absolutely. That's good. Another another interesting thing is that once we get almost into that end of the lap, you know, I was talking about Pitcock, how he was sort of playing it nice um, and just sort of sitting in and saving his matches. At the same time, he was testing the field, which I thought was really cool. Like he came out of the feed zone and he put in just these little micro attacks. You know, it, it looked it looked like those road racing skills really just like, OK, let's see what this does. You know, if I'm on a cloud, let's see what this does. And he just went out front and then dropped back. And then that really, I think, got fluky then to that next level of, oh, this this kid's actually um, on it. I need to do something. And then I think he put in maybe too hard of an attack and actually like gapped Pidcock and by about seven seconds. And that's when him and Nino was out there. It was really interesting. And I almost I don't know, this is just going back and thinking about it, but it almost looked like Pitcock played him into doing that to the sort of showing his cards a little too soon. Well, I think that, I mean, I think we've already seen, despite him being uh, very young, and perhaps it was because of Havra, where he came of age, uh, that, you know, now it's it's come to fruition. But I think that Pitcock is a very uh, instinctual racer. And I think a part of, you know, obviously he's insanely talented, but I think we've seen time and again where his instincts are just like top notch. And I think about like uh, Bowen's Worlds uh, in the U23 race against our buddy uh, Ailey Ezerbeet. You know, Ailey Ezerbeet goes out strong. He's like, you know, Ailey's going to win. And Pickox just like senses this moment to make like an absolutely soul crushing, devastating attack and just. You know, I don't think I think Ailey Ezerbeet is still just dead somewhere on the shores of of Denmark because of what Tom Pidcock did to him there. Uh, you know, I think we saw it at Havra too when he beat Vanderpool. He just kind of sensed where Vanderpool was not riding well, and he knew, you know, in the later later laps to make those attacks. And it seems like, I mean, we'll get to I think when he makes ultimately his decisive attack to to hold the win. I think again he sensed. Uh, an opportunity, and I think that's kind of what you're seeing. Is he just his instincts are very good? I think it, it pairs well with his uh, insane level of talent. Yeah, and just talking about that, and event, just getting getting to the to the meat of the race. You know, Elizabeth, you were talking about the attack that happened on the on the pavement when it came to lap three. It's the exact opposite, and again, it's those. I think that road racing, and even even it's the uh, in the men's race, it's the third to last lap of a cyclocross race where everybody sits up and looks at each other and Pitcock's kind of the instigator in this he sort of rolls to the front kind of sits up looks around checks everybody out sees what he's doing tries to draft back and then once he does that that's the lap that's when they get to the top of the climb to that off camber that he makes his move and goes out front so I, I, again I, I just felt like you were watching a rider in total control of the race at 30 minutes into a 90 minute race I, I did notice though it seems to me and correct me if I'm wrong but he also when he made his what proved to be his decisive mood he was with Nino and Flukager, and I think there was one other rider there. Flukager fell back to fourth, so it was Nino in second. And I'm pretty convinced that he revved it in part because he kind of sensed that, like, he had this opportunity where he's like, ha, 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 "Old man, you're not following this." And my biggest, con-, you know, and we see where Vanderpool will do that to Wout if Wout makes a mistake, if Wout slips back to fourth, like Vanderpool attack. And so, to me, I, my takeaway from that was is again just a very smart bike racing move, knowing that when your top competitor is in a bad position and you know, it put him in put Flukager like six seconds back for, you know, a good, good chunk of time. It felt like, 
Yeah, I mean, in that moment, I think, and this is kind of, you know, if we're going to arbitrate Nino's backness, I think Nino looked super dialed. Like, he looked like he was riding the course exceptionally well and just at that point did not have the youthful exuberance of his young British competitor uh, to stick with it. But, you know, throughout the race, really, you know, in in terms of sort of technical finesse, uh, Nino looked really outstanding. I think he really had um, had that dialed in in many cases, I think, better than anybody in the field. Uh, and so so that was a really, you know, a strong opportunity for Pidcock to sort of shake him once and for all and really sort of like turn that last screw Um I, and I, I forget, I think, I mean, Cooper was up there in, in that third or fourth position for a while. Um, and then Koretsky as well, who I think Koretsky is an example of somebody who peaked well uh, for this season. Like he peaked well to qualify for the French squad and then peaked well to perform at the Olympics. I mean, not well enough to medal, but well enough to have a much better performance than we'd seen from him in the last couple of World Cups. So I have a question for you guys. It seemed like, because uh, Pickcock's lead on Flukiger was not big. I mean, like it was, he was one dab, one mistake. I was surprised that Pitcock tried to just keep that advantage. Were you guys surprised that he didn't let Flukiger kind of come back and say, I'll try doing this again? Because uh, it seemed like he was just you know, I mean, not that you can dangle necessarily in second, but Flukiger was darn close. Like, isn't isn't that what we're talking? I mean, isn't that like the he was sort of employing the Vanderpool strategy? Is that you just got to keep him above his comfort zone the whole time? And I think that it worked. I mean, you get to the fifty-seven minute point, and I think that's the decisive move. You're talking about Davs, where they're on that steep climb that you could get stuck on and fluky had to go foot down on it and that was that was really game over at that point that was he had fluky did not give up he he had gotten that race back to six seconds at the hour mark of an hour and 15 minute race and or hour 25 minute race and 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 that was it that was that was it it was one foot down and it was over and then i think that really kind of broke him from there yeah i thought at that before that happened i thought he was going to probably close the gap. I thought he was going to bring it back. I thought this was, you know, it was closer than we had seen. And and it made me, you know, again, made me wonder what would this race have looked like if Vanderpool had not crashed? You know, what would those dynamics be like? Because we didn't see Pidcock have anywhere near as big of an advantage as one might have expected would be possible based on a lot of the well, previous race with Pidcock in it and and sort of the pre-race chatter, um, it was it was tighter than expected at that point. And I think, you know, that is, again, kind of going into that what course conditions and that how much dabbing sets you back. Um, that was really, yeah, the wind was, was I mean, he was full on in the chase and then the wind was a little out of his sails after that because I think he realized how many seconds he lost. Going back to your your analogy before, Zach, that's where they needed Wout at Namor to bring to bring everybody back to Pitcock. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That I mean, that is like a Pitcock race that doesn't necessarily follow the script. Uh, but you know, because he was unable to, I mean, he went early and he ultimately finished third. But yeah, I think Bill, like 
you know, extending the Vanderpool analogy is you get a rider riding just above their limit and you do that long enough, they're going to make a mistake. And it, you know, I, it just, it was pretty clear that, you know, Bill, we talked about in the previous, uh, just the duo podcast we did, you know, how Pitcock was going to react to his um, bad race at Leger. And I, you know, I, I think I, we reached the conclusion that he was going to handle this correctly. He was going to do the, you know, he was going to do the Jay-Z. He was going to brush off his shoulder and he was going to stick to the plan and not change anything. And it seems like he did that. And he came in with a ton of confidence and, and wrote like it. Uh, you know, I was, I was super impressed, uh, you know, but, Again, I, I think it's, you know, it's one of those things, I guess there were a couple of quotes that, you know, had come out and we'll get to one for the women's race. Uh, but, you know, his, uh, he made a bold statement prediction, if you will, uh, or he was born to do this. And I think he, he rode with someone who has the conviction uh, that he was, he was born to win this Olympic gold medal. Uh, yes, I believe that. But at the same time, I really think that Vanderpool is such an X factor in these races that I, I'm telling you, him him being eliminated made that so. It's easy for him to look back and say that now, but he was scared. For sure he was scared. Like it, that that part of it, I think, is, is much easier to say as soon as it was so dominant. But the other point I realized during this is that Nino was ahead of Vanderpool when he crashed. And so I'm wondering, in in the way that Nino was flexing on Pidcock, or it looked like he was, was he also kind of, did he know whether or not Vanderpool had crashed at that point? And is he still racing like those two X factors of Pidcock and Vanderpool are still there? And is that how he's racing? Because that's what it looks like to me. Whereas Pidcock's like, well, I have this little secret back here. He has no idea that this guy's not in the race anymore. <laughs> and that that's kind of how it seems like it played out. And I'm just so fascinated by this side of it, of, of something happening in a race like that. And how does it affect everybody else and how they're approaching it? Yeah, for sure. You know, and then and then, you know, what's going on behind is as equally compelling. You know, we had this great battle at one point between uh Scherter and Koretsky and Cooper for that bronze medal. And I had mentioned the, you know, some of the production choices from the the the, the, the team broadcasting this race. And uh uh, uh Elizabeth uh where the hell did David Valero come from? We never, we never got to Holy see that third group. Smokes! Oh my god! So, yeah, he's like we're. I think three laps in, he's still in twentieth or further. I mean, he is back, far, far back, and that. I mean. What like in watching like rewatching little clips of it, I was just like the thing I wanted most was like a reverse helmet mounted GoPro on him, like to see like what did you do, bud? Because you crushed it. Like whatever you did, you had the ride of your life to come from thirtieth on lap one, and like at, at one point I was watching the ticker and he made it up a few places, then he was back a few places, so it wasn't like just a consistent climb to the top, but unbelievable like he must have had just a hell of a ride which is great like good for him and it's not like he hasn't had good results but not olympic bronze results and so and i mean i think also some of that i think is 
unfortunately due to Andre Sink's misfortune, um, because I think he was uh, also in in a really reasonable uh, contention for that bronze position until having an extremely sad, ill-timed flat um, that clearly also had took its emotional toll on him. I mean, I really felt for him. Like if he had straight up thrown his bike off the course, I wouldn't have blamed him because it was he he was really moving up and and looking really sharp, and then that all went away. Yeah, and it was almost comical with the other guys who were really playing this cat and mouse game, really setting it up for who was going to get third place. And they're all looking around, and one goes out front, and they've dropped back. And Valero's just like, hey, guys, what's going on? See you at the finish, and just like zooms by all of them and and, and takes takes the bronze, which was just just a crazy, crazy finish. Any um, Anything else? Uh, we when should, I, well, uh, when I about? saw those results, I was thinking like, oh, Spain did the random third place again, just like in Rio 26. I thought it was a joke. I was like, no, there's no way the random <laughs> Spaniard got it. Oh, no, he did. <laughs> Amazing. I have uh, two, two, two uh, final questions here on, on the men's race. First question Avancini shows up with a non-gold helmet for the Olympic race, most likely just because it's Federation rules. So does he now go back to the gold helmet post-Olympics? Yeah, I think so, right? That's <laughs> yeah, his, probably that's his does. thing. His, his helmet was something else, too. I mean, it was not subtle. So <laughs> I think we can be guaranteed that it will no, – no subtle helmet choices for him regardless of what it looks like. Second question for the panel. Who had a better Olympic mountain bike race? Matthew Vanderpoel or Peter Sagan? Oh, man. That is a great question, Bill. Vanderpool. I say Vanderpool. He got he was on Twitter like within half an hour, I swear, that he pulled off the course. He was replying to tweets. I was like, what are you doing on your phone? But I think he, it was a genius move because he got probably just as much media attention from that crash as Pidcock did winning. So in terms of the media win, I'd say Vanderpool. <laughs> I will just say if they are ever introduced to each other, they'll now have something to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to go with uh, Amanda on that one. He clearly did a great job of spinning the media narrative on this, despite uh, very deep uh, and strong attempts to throw him under the bus. I think he still came out looking all right on this one. Uh also looking super relatable to people who've had race brain moments where they've definitely thought that something was going to go very differently in a race than it ended up. It was like a very humanizing moment for Vanderpool, actually. And, I mean, Sagan can just kind of go eat a bag of rocks, in my opinion, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> Bill, I have a question for you, and then we can move on. So, like, in it's like a, this practice in like football, like the quarterback, if they have a good game, buys stuff, buys stakes and watches for the offensive line because they keep them safe. Olympic gold. What does Pidcock buy Vlad Daskalou? Yeah, right. right? I, Without that ride, like if Vlad hadn't delivered in that one race, this 
No gold. Well, uh, uh, Vlad, and then I guess his other wingman would be uh, Clatcherty. Is that right? Is that the guy's name? The the U twenty three GB rider who had to get that that's that placement, that fourteenth spot or whatever he did at Mount Saint Anne to make it possible to, for Vlad to you know hand off that spot to him. So those, yeah, for sure, those two guys. I think. I think a nice watch. I wouldn't want any I think British a nice food. Watch. I would not want. I would not want British food. Like, let's just start there. Like, I don't. I don't want British food. I don't want fish and chips. Your your beef's terrible. I, I think you're right. Like a watch or something. Like something nice. A grenadier. Each of them gets a brand new grenadier. I was just gonna say, Ineos has deep pockets. There's some natural sponsor opportunities there. <laughs> All right, let's let's move on to this to this women's race and. Yeah, Elizabeth again going back to the to the course and the changes that were made and just the I I would say chaos really before the start of this race with torrential downpours an hour before it and then we get to race time and it's it's kind of perfect conditions. Yeah, it looked like pretty great conditions. I mean, definitely slippery in some spots. Um I think, you know, I know there was some chatter afterwards about them rerouting the rock garden line and making it shorter. Um, but honestly, I think that the, the uh, field should be thankful because Neff would have just had a bigger gap. Uh, she clearly had no hesitation, no problems uh, in that rock garden. And I, it looked like oh, uh, other people were maybe checking their brakes a little going into some of those drops. So um, I think it, it looked like, you know, and it's it's funny actually comparing and contrasting the reasons that people had to dab in the men's race versus the women's race um, and which climbs. Um, I think, you know, you end up with a super decisive factor super early on in this women's race uh, where you have two of our favorite cyclocross uh, phenoms, uh, Pauline Ferrand-Provo and Yolanda Neff, uh, hitting a pinch point early on on a sharp hairpin turn. Yolanda tries a little bit longer to ride it than Pauline. Pauline's immediately off the bike and running, uh, and they both get a, a huge gap right away um, because this ends up being uh, a decisive moment to choose to run. But by and large, I was tuning in expecting to see conditions that were you know more more like what what was the really wet race that we saw a few weeks or months ago like there was i was expecting it to be a lot worse and this ended up looking like in most places they actually had some super nice tacky dirt uh in ways that were very favorable um for people who knew how to ride that uh none other than yolanda neff mostly so um, I think it's this also allowed there wasn't a lot of use of A line B line choices in the men's race uh, in the same way that it ended up being uh, pretty decisive in the women's race. And I think even even early on, Yolanda takes a more challenging line. And uh, while Loana's in the front and we're in a, a situation where we think, OK, we're well, we're at about the five minute mark. So this is the time where Loana is going to just ride away and the race is over. And then. Just a minute or so after that, no no dice um, because the A-line that Yolanda takes that at that point nobody else takes ends up putting her right up at the front. And, and I think that ended up playing out in a couple of different places throughout the race for other riders as well that we got to see more of the course getting utilized, uh, which was pretty exciting. 
I know, Zach, you were saying that this this race was over quick, but you had to be excited that it wasn't Loana out there after what we've seen this whole season. Well, totally. I mean, that's one thing that I want to talk about. It seems like, uh, you know, there was that moment where she briefly got a gap and you're like, oh, here we go again, except wait a second. There's not a really long climb for her to, to press her advantage. And I just kind of wonder, you know, I guess maybe once on the broadcast, they were talking about it a little bit, but the, the mental side of things, like she took, you know, there was the, the Ferran Prevost at Leger, uh, chin music as Michael would call it, uh, in his absence. But, you know, then she was just like, walls, I'm just going to drop you anyway. Um, but it seems like, you know, she was put in a place where she wasn't in first, like she was racing from behind and it seems like that took a, a toll on her. And I don't know. I mean, and part of it was just like a rejuvenate. I mean, like, look, let's, let's not bury the lead here. I mean, Yolanda Neff was very back, uh, in just her aggressiveness and how she rode. Um, she looked, Stronger on the climbs too. I know I always call it the, uh, I call it the, the spinny poof method of climbing. And I think that these short steep hills really play into that skill where we saw like, maybe it was at Leger or was another race where she was like in the mix and then there was a climb hit and she just fell apart. It was like, what is, what is happening here? Uh, so it was, you know, whatever she did to, to prepare for this, like she was just totally dialed in and raced super aggressively. And I mean, as Elizabeth said, like her technicals, I mean, this course was just, this course was made for Elon enough. Like, yeah, I, I think it was that wasabi climb that the, the spinny poof is a great gauge for just how steep that climb was because usually her cadence is so fast. And even Yolanda in that super small gear was still like sort of cranking it out up that up that climb to get up it right and i think it was actually great evidence of why that technique for her is in this instance on this kind of a course super successful because she was able to maintain traction because she was comfortable being in that gear and knowing how to put down exactly the kind of pressure she needed to keep traction uh, and, you know, I mean, we saw that she's not the only rider to be able to ride it. I mean, Evie Richards makes it up that uh, once or twice. I think Ann Tauber made it up it. Like, there are a few riders who do, but you're really on the edge. And I think the fact that Yolanda spends a lot of time in that, you know, pie plate end of her cassette means that she is really comfortable with, you know, what does, like, just how much does each ratchet of the pedal give you and how do you keep that traction going and yeah and i think it, it is like you, you're you, that is the best evidence of how steep that is which is phenomenally steep yeah and i think that you are you know you nailed it too on why she wins this race because the exact phrase of knowing when to put pressure on the pedals she did pauline didn't and if we get get to that point sort of the race making move it, it's sort of a two-parter i mean we start out once again we're talking about the the drop where vanderpool got it absolutely wrong because he thought there was going to be a ramp there in the women's race hey there's a ramp there they put it back they felt you know and i uh, chatting with simon bernie who was in on that decision he's like look every woman out there can can you know, make that jump. Absolutely. No problem. When we were making the course changes, when the Olympics committee was making the the course changes, that landing zone was just 
completely washed out and it just wasn't safe. So they decided to put the ramp back in. By the time the race actually started, it completely drained out and it was fine again. And, you know, I mentioned this in the in the article that I wrote that the, the one thing that that did is actually made it more dangerous having that ramp there because without the ramp, there's one speed. I mean, you have to completely commit and everybody is completely committing. Nobody can slow roll it and drop off the front. Pauline slow rolled it and dropped off the front and uh, uh, Yolanda is right behind her just in disbelief like what the hell are you doing and having to just um, you know grab brakes and ends up going off the side and somehow somehow I'm not sure I've watched it a lot of times Amanda you've watched it the most recently I don't know how she saves this I don't know how she comes out of this and is able to go on and then we go down that ramp and then it's that next section where she's able to send it up the rock um climb and pauline puts it down on the pedals and i zach before we get to you i want i really amanda what are your thoughts on that on that drop and just that that interaction between pauline and yolanda i think it was the epitome of the entire race right there and when I was watching the women's race live, I kept thinking to myself how much it felt like the French riders were just completely flailing the whole time. It felt like they were always on the back foot and trying to make up for something. Like the way PFP was racing, it was like a game of catch-up. Everything she was doing was like, oh, oh, shoot, I got to do this. Oh, I got to do this. And it never felt smooth and confident and like she knew what she was doing. And so in a way, the comments that Neff made after of like, oh, I think, you know, she brake checked me or made it sound like she brake checked her. I really think she just wasn't confident going into it. And Neff was in a completely different headspace of I've got this. I know what to do here. And in that moment of like, what are you doing? I know what to do here. Get out of my way. And PFP still like hesitating and not confident. And that's all the body language that I saw in that moment. And just the rest of that race was determined from there. I mean, I, I guess to my original point was I'm surprised that it just did not get labeled some kind of beef because we label everything beef and it's just reached the point of irrelevancy. No offense to your poet, Bill, I know you were doing it tongue in cheek, but, you know, because Neff was upset and then she was just did a total like, I'm just going to boss you. But then Ferran Provo felt like it was unfair what Neff did bossing her on the slippery rocks. And then she was kind of talking smack or whatever. Um, but I mean, I, I don't know. I I've watched, I've watched Fran Provo race enough. I mean, she's obviously very fit. Her technical skills just aren't anywhere near as good as, as Yolanda Neff's. And she's always, she always looks like on the verge Amanda, like you said of like, just, and this, this course did not suit her. And I'm sure that she was, Riding. I mean, it was a technical course. Like, I felt my shoulder dislocating because uh, I've dislocated it like four times. Like on every rock feature, being like, "Yep, it's another trip to the ER." That's not, you know. And these riders are riding it. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe she should have been a little bit more cognizant that she wouldn't like go full send, knowing that there was a ramp there. Because you saw, like, most of the women, to their credit, were still jumping it, uh, except for Ferran Provo. Like, she rode the ramp like every time, and I don't just. I don't know. Uh, but I guess my, my point ultimately was I'm surprised because there was some back and forth. Like if this was two men, you know, maybe it's, that's part of it. Like we'd be like, Oh, there's beef between these two superstars, but it seems like it kind of flew under the radar, uh, a little bit, a little back and forth between them. Well, and especially because there's this whole narrative that they're friends, um, friends who've had collisions, 
which, you know, cool, I guess. That's a fun friend to have. Um, but I think, you know, I, I, I do think it's a real testament to Yolanda's uh, situational awareness and insane ability on the bike. I mean, to be able to ride out of that is truly something else. I mean, a spectacular reaction and confidence to to just have the body awareness to know what to do in that situation. I mean, she gets punched. Like, her fork takes every bit and she manages to steer out of it. Um, I do think, you know, I think, Amanda, you're right. Like, she, Pauline just goes into it looking really timid uh, in comparison. And and I, I can see where Neff wasn't expecting that, um, even though maybe she should have expected that from Pauline, knowing her as well as she does. Um, I think on that rock line, though, on the uphill, like, they're on the left line, right line. Yolanda has is not making any sort of move that is in any way interfering with Pauline just messing up. And so there's no... There is no beef to be served there because Yolanda just did it right and Pauline just messed it up. Um, so, you know, in a spectacularly embarrassing looking fashion, there was a moment where I was watching this race and thinking about this being the Olympics and there being all of these people unfamiliar with mountain bike racing watching this sport and like between the running up the hairpin mud turn and then the bike rolling down the hill I'm like pe people must be watching this thinking like these are the best people in the world at this thing like really like this looks <laughs> it's this so isn't, they're not even on their bikes so like true. what is this um so you know who knows if this is the best foot forward for mountain biking on an, a global scale but um i mean neff took care of making it look pretty great so did you guys happen to see the the in Jenny Rizved's Instagram, where she had said she was genuinely happy for Neff, did you guys see that? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm. I was like, uh, that made me happy. Uh, like, it was cool to read something like that. But you know, going back to your point, is that did the media not make this beef a little bit more beefy? I do think that they tried to play the women's stories more of like, oh, they're all friends, and this is la di da, and it's great. They're just racing. It's fun. We're going to hug at the end. But I want to see more cat fights, and I want to see that drama between them. I think it's fun, and it's great. We're not all like super besties, right? And Jenny had to even make that point of like, it was like 10 years of her having this issue with Yolanda because she was always just a little bit better and she could never get her head around that. And she finally got to that point of, no, I'm super happy for her and, and this was a great race. And I, I love seeing stories like that because that's the real side of it. We're not just all like super friendly and high-fiving. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was glad to see that from Jenny too. And I think that was, you know, it speaks about a lot to her maturation as an athlete and as a person right now and kind of like the you know her own mental health journey that she's been on to acknowledge that so yeah. publicly even um so yeah i think that's um that was an, an, a nice lining that i wasn't expecting to be reading that in jenny's recap post yeah. also sad for jenny to not have a great race and to have a flat um i think i wonder if that pinch point at the beginning caught her up in ways that negatively impacted uh, the rest of her race um, because I was expecting that she would maybe be up a little bit further than she was. 
Bill, part of, uh, I think there was an argument that, uh, although we've seen what can happen when you go asunder of your qualification criteria, that Mittens, uh, Mona Mitten-Walner, uh, should have been the Austrian representative. And I think it was, uh, and there's a reason for bringing this up, but like, Laura Steger had a terrible day. Uh, my God, did uh, she struggled. <laughs> I feel bad for her. I mean, she was you know, making mistakes and both, I think both Swiss riders at some point just made like ridiculously strong attacks past her. Cause they also recognized that. Um, but you know, uh, would things have changed should mittens have been the, the Austrian representative, like were mistakes made. I, there's no way to know. And the thing is that like, we've seen, we've seen Mitterwalner against the elite racers, in that Swiss Cup race, right? Like, that was it. But she won, like, by two minutes over everyone. She just destroyed everyone. But then since then, she's U23 in all of the World Cup, so we don't really get to see where she's at. But at the same time, she's crushing these U23 World Cup races. So I don't know. I think think the, the best thing I can say is I am so looking forward to seeing her next year. Hopefully she runs. The thing is, like, she's a kid still. She's not. She has like a couple more years in U twenty three. It's like if she wanted to stay there, she's not like racing. I think until like twenty twenty five in the elites. Can we do like uh, so? There's this thing that you do. It's the the transitive property of of sports victories, and we do this a lot in like college sports because you don't play every team. Uh, it's you know. Uh, my team beat this team and this team beat this other team. Therefore, my team is better than team C. Uh, so could we apply the transitive property of uh, Mittens destroying Blanca Vosh in these World Cups and just like add three minutes to Blanca Vosh's uh, deficit and just say that she would have won the race? Can we can we do that? Is that how that works? Sure. <laughs> not quite i don't think she i don't know that she would have beat yolanda on this i really i think she would have been a i mean who knows but i think she probably would have been a, a strong metal contender um but i think yolanda had the gold in her so i actually want to do we'll, we'll to talk about um the battle for a second which you know was was really dynamic uh after the 2019 trek Water, World Cup Waterloo, right, where Yolanda Neff uh, rode off the fourth row and she finished second. And if the laps had not been 15 minutes long and the race was forced to only be three laps, she would have beaten Katerina Nash and won the race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I was Jeff, interviewing Jeff, after the race. Jeff, Jeff Kabush, I, I am not standing by Zach's statement there. Just putting that <laughs> on the record right now. Continue. Oh, okay. Oh, Sorry. I mean, great if Jeff listens. Hi, Jeff. <laughs> Go chug a beer. Um, <laughs> uh, I, so I was interviewed at the race. And I was asking her about you know riding in conditions like that. And she's like, oh, in Switzerland, we ride in the worst conditions all the time. It's what we do. It's what we were. One might say that we were born to ride in bad conditions. And so I think against that backdrop, like the women's result sheet makes a lot of sense. It does, though I I will say that there are plenty of other women in that field who are also good in bad conditions, and I don't know that either Fry or Indigant have really made themselves known for being good in wet conditions. Um, not that that doesn't mean they couldn't rise to the occasion and crush it. Uh, 
I, I think, you know, I, I, I go back and forth between whether I was surprised at the podium results or not. Um, because I think like both those, those two writers both had every, every right and every results sheet to deserve being there. Um, but nonetheless, a pretty impressive podium sweep that I don't think I would have predicted. So they like to say, uh, also in, in, in sports, you know, in a big rivalry, right? We say, throw the records out. It doesn't matter when clearly there's times where like one team is really good and one team is, is really bad. Uh, but nothing this year suggested this podium really in any of this iteration I, you know, I mean, you can make an argument for Indergan. Like she had that good. I, like there was no, there was no result where you could say yes because of this result. I am, I, I am confident in making this prediction. Like, are the Olympics? You guys have seen way more than me. I, is it that unique of an event? Is it the the weight of it? Like the mental being, you know, preparing for four years for this event. Like, is that such a thing that literally you just kind of like throw the records out? It doesn't matter. From the standpoint of those those three riders, I saw them saying that they had spent the previous three weeks together, and I think that that plays a big role in it, in the you're all together, you're doing the same rides, you're training, you understand each other's quirks and weird stuff, and I think that in Indergan's case, knowing that her teammate was right there the whole time, I think really benefited her because, you know, maybe there was part of her that like, oh yeah, I can ride with her, I've been riding her with her for three weeks, I can stay here, whereas if you looked at her body language, it didn't look like she felt like she could stay there, but mentally I think she was like, no, I can be here because I've been riding with her and I can do it, and there was that confidence, but the way that she was riding in her body language, I was like, how is this girl in third? <laughs> so I think, I think yes, it is the Olympics and you rise to the occasion, but there are all these other external things that might not happen normally at these other events. Well, also, I think that the, the Swiss team, the Swiss Federation had like this pack of women in the pit who were stoked I mean, I was a little worried they started celebrating too early at one (laughs) point. Like, go, like, okay, hold your breath now. But but they were, you know, the Swiss Federation looked dialed and looked happy. And I think that that kind of, you know, that environment around, like, like Amanda was saying, like, you've been riding with these people, but you've also been working with this staff that's there for you and you feel like they've got your back. That's got to matter. And I mean, I think you look at things, you look at other federations that are not as all in on something. And if you're used to having a certain level of your trade team support and now you don't have that kind of support with your federation or vice versa. And I think, you know, in Indergun's case, it's a vice versa. Like she's probably got a shitload more support from the Swiss Federation than she does on a normal race day. Um, which is no disrespect to live, but like the Swiss Federation is a dialed federation for this, and they know they have metal contenders on their hands. Is it possible to subtweet it during a podcast? Because I think the Dutch may have been listening to that uh, right about now, especially in Vanderpool's <laughs> case. Uh, one, one thing that I did want to point out one, Intergant, absolutely right, Elizabeth. And also, it's kind of the revelation of this season. You know, we were, she, she came out of, of the gates in that first short track, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, Eliminator World Champs. Obviously, she's going to be able to race great in these 20 minute, 25 minute races, but is she going to be able to do it in the cross countries? 
No, it was Elizabeth. Let's let's give all credit where it's due. It was also, I mean, her without Indergand wouldn't be on this podcast probably. So all credit, all credit to Elizabeth. Okay. Like, I'm going to have to send her a car, right? Is that how this works now? <laughs> I, or a watch? <laughs> I don't don't deceive the people about how much about how much uh, we get in. in uh, but you can you can give us money. But yeah, don't don't deceive the people. I think Peters <laughs> okay. is going to get a, a, just a little bit more. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> All right. All credit to Elizabeth on that one. The the, the second point that um, I, I, I what is interesting to note if you look back, you look at Cena Fry, who had an amazing race. We've seen glimpses of her in the past. U twenty three world champion, you know, but a little a little tougher going in glimpses in the elite field, but never really a breakthrough race like this. I was like looking back into the U twenty three rivalries and they're all right there. And they were all metal contenders for this race for that class. And it was Cena Fry, it's Evie Richards, and it's Kate Courtney. Those three had epic battles at the U23 level and I think that if you came into this race you would you're if I was going to rank them, I would put Evie first. I think that she has shown she has had the best success lately and looked really good. And even looked, you know, halfway through this race, she looked like a medal contender. Looked like she was fighting for that bronze, but just couldn't couldn't hang on to it for the entire race. I think Kate Courtney, you know, has been struggling all season long. We've seen that broke her wrist. How she even is racing, I'm not sure, but she's there and you know is still able to to pull off a fifteenth place, but. This, I think this for Cena Fry may carry over to the rest of these World Cups. I think this is a really breakthrough race for her and a confidence builder. It should also be noted that Cena Fry was second at the test event. Oh, interesting. So it was Yolanda Cena in that one as well. Yeah. So they, okay. Yep. Yeah. So not, not, not like she didn't know what to do with this course. Right. Uh, so another another thing that came up that I, I gleaned from the broadcast uh, criticize I guess <laughs> as we may uh, they were talking about how the French Federation built a replica course uh, and I kind of wonder you know I think there's a lot of talk we do this in cross where like you expect nationals to be someone to train this skill or whatever I mean do you guys think to me I think it puts it seems like the amount that's just an additional insane amount of pressure that they're already putting on this event that they treat with way too much reverence anyway like that's all we think about for four years i i don't to me it like kind of strikes me as a bit overboard and perhaps a little too much on the side of just creating way too much mental anguish or a block around this event and elizabeth you're nodding your head so it seems like you kind of agree yeah, I raised my eyebrows at that moment of the commentary, too. It was like, whoa, okay. But I think, you know, I, I was talking about this a little bit with my husband, and I think that that's, it's probably not that uncommon that there are probably other federations that have built some features like this. I mean, a full replica course, maybe not, but some of these things you want to replicate. But I do think, like, it, the it is it is a strange thing. I mean, the Olympics have a whole complicated and messed up history to them for a lot of reasons. Um, 
lots and lots of reasons that we could spend like five podcasts talking about all of the problematic things about the Olympics. But it is, it does really feel like you're putting a whole lot of pressure on one race that doesn't actually have anything to do with anything else in your season, except that it has this reverence to it and this aura around it and this mythology around it that, you know, everybody knows what an Olympian is. And I think it it kind of goes back to that comment I was making earlier about like, wow, all these people who never watch mountain bike racing have now seen a mountain bike race. Like I had coworkers texting me and asking me questions about it because they know I race mountain bikes, right? So there are people who don't know anything about this who are watching this. And I think it is a, it's an opportunity to showcase that, but it then also puts this, it is not the best foot forward of the sport necessarily because you've put all of this sort of undue weirdness around it, for lack of a better term. Um, And going even back to the fact that, you know, like Bill was saying earlier, there are only 38 men in this race where we're used to seeing well over 100. Um, So it's a strange thing to put a lot of pressure on. But I think it's going to be it's pretty intractable at this point how much emphasis is put on Olympic sports. Well, so another question, I guess, you know, I think you hit on an excellent point that it does provide outside people the opportunity to see the sport. But like in the way that we watch, Bill always makes team handball jokes or whatever um, or whatever other sport. Like, I don't I don't know the history. I don't actually care who won. I was just like, hey, rah, rah, probably rude for America. Uh, Elizabeth, maybe in your case, the Dutch, Uh, you know, but generally speaking, it's like, oh, we watched it was good or whatever, but we don't take anything away from that. We don't go say, wow, I'm really invested in this. And, you know, you look at it in cycling and I just, I'll throw out an example, like Nino Scherter won gold in Rio, but he's also, I hear way more about his eight world's titles. And it seems like the thing that you're usually going to bring up is the number of world's titles versus it versus a throwaway. Like, you know, like, oh, you know, uh, Neff has won a world's jersey. Uh, Fran Prevost has won three mountain bike worlds. Oh, and uh, Rispet, she was the Olympic champion, but like, whatever. Like, it just doesn't, within the sport, and correct me if I'm wrong, it still seems like we don't necessarily care uh, as much. And, you know, I think of road racing, they're trying to make it more of a thing where you care who wins Olympic gold. But, you know, uh, I don't know. It just, am I, am I wrong? Like, am I, am I in the minority here? Like, just because I'm so used to it from cyclocross talking about worlds, like, you know, does, will this hold cachet going forward? Let's say like Neff doesn't do well in the world cups for the rest of the year has bad year, you know, bad race at worlds. Is it still like, Hey, she's the Olympic champ or next year we're going to be like, who has the rainbow stripes on? I don't think it matters. Any of that matters for the athletes. And I think this is something that is why there is this big, just always this pull between trade teams and and athletes for what they'll do for their national federation and the difference is you know look how it is on the u.s if you make the national team and you're in an olympic sport and you won a gold medal that puts you at that gold level you get national funding so you're set you get a salary every year you get your life is taken care of. So that is where it's not about bringing new fans into. It's not about promoting the sport. It is completely individual. If I do well in the Olympics, I'm set for the next four years, and then I can deal with everything else. So I think that's 
That's really where it is. And and I agree. I mean, I, I know growing up when I saw track and field and it was great and you're watching, you know, like all of these amazing athletes in track and field. And then, and then you get like some glimpse, you know, I'm old pre-internet and you're like, Oh, they, they, they do other things too. There's like a European championship. There's these other meets up. There's there. They actually do things other than the Olympics. I had no idea. You just have, you know, and I think that's the same way people are with a lot of these sports and that's the same way. But I really think it's, it's so important for individual athletes to do well in the Olympics so that, they don't have to worry about, you know, where their next meal is coming from in that way. I mean, it's why Bart Brenches still has a job. Like he is the commentator for all the World Cups because he was the first Olympic gold medalist in mountain biking the first year that they had it. Like that's he's still riding that as as Paul Morris for his whole rest of his career. And I think that you when you look at it from PFP's perspective specifically, she's won everything but this. And so you can see that in the way that she races. She want this she wants this so badly because it's the one thing she doesn't have yet. And I think that there yes, there is that prestige and it's the every four years and we're like, yeah, whatever, Nino's still the best, and we like forget that he even has a gold medal. But in different I think it's like case by case basis for some people. I will say this, you know, the, the Olympics were fun. They were great races. You know, look, we've been talking about them for 90 minutes and probably could go for another 90 if we wanted to. I am really happy when they are over because I like it because then mountain biking and World Cup mountain biking sort of goes back to normal and the focus then becomes on on the racing again and you know i know zach you pointed out where it's like you know hey if you wanted to steal a race in these the last couple world cups like leger that was the time to do it because everybody's already peaked and all they care about is the olympics so now we have a couple years and then that'll start ramping up again but now it's uh it's just back to world cups and world championships anything else before we uh close up well, the one other question, I guess I was thinking about quotes and I wanted to to see, you know, uh, there was the famous quote after, was it after Albstadt when, when uh, Kate Courtney and Haley Batten went three, four or something like that. And Kate Courtney said, we're going to have a lot of fun in Tokyo. Did she jinx it? Maybe. Bummer. Well, I just to me, it was like the two diverging, like these quotes happen almost like concurrently with one another. And we had like, you know, I just to me, it was just remembering that those are two quotes that really stuck out. I mean, Pidcock would be making fun of for the rest of his career about him being born, making fun of not the right word, pointing it out, making light of it, because clearly he was born to do this. But yeah, it was just like I was thinking about that before the show It was like, um, yeah. An interesting yeah, that, proclamation that really the yeah, Haley Batten ninth place, right? Like really nice, but definitely not what the American Federation, I think, was expecting. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, absolutely no slouch of an Olympic debut for Haley Batten. Um, and, and and really not just an Olympic debut, but an elite season debut. Um, it's you know, pretty spectacular that she is at that point at all, you know, it was a, not a given, um, it wasn't even in question that she would be going to the Olympics. And the fact that she was able to go to the Olympics is pretty cool and had a pretty respectable performance on the day, but, um, yeah, a little bit of a, a, a jinx or a bummer, uh, to come out of that for, for the American squad. All right. 
Amanda, thanks for joining us in the uh, in the media pit for uh, for some mountain bike talk. I think you, me, and uh, uh, Zach are gonna uh, move move back to the green room and then uh, get ready for a little grodio, which uh, y'all can uh, check out that podcast as well, which should be coming out soon. That's right, because Amanda during cyclocross season technically not allowed in the media pit as an athlete, like that's true as a guest, but not as a, as a commentator. That would break the. Uh, I don't know. I feel like some sort of uh, aura. Since we're talking auras and jinxes and new agey stuff, there would be some sort of new agey thing that would be be broken there. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This is fun. I I think I watched these mountain bike races from that lens of that that huge pressure cooker of four years. I think that that was how I was watching it because there are so many stories around it and how people are preparing and you wanted to see if Beck McConnell could do it and Kate Courtney has this huge spotlight and there are these so many great stories. And um, yeah, so I appreciate you having me on as like the, the different outside commentary, but it was fun to watch with that lens. All right, we'll see you all next time. Dear cycling friends, we accept the fact that we have created the premier gravel and road racing podcast, and we don't think you're crazy to ask us who we think we are. You see us as you want to see us, in the simplest terms, in the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a hobby blogger, a gravel pro, and a curious newbie. And you can find us on the Wide Angle Podium Network. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours the Grodio Podcast.